Now, it's, it's been a little while since we've been in our sermon series on Joseph. Last time we were in Genesis 43, or last time we were in Genesis, we were in chapter 43, and we saw how Joseph had had mercy on his brothers on account of Benjamin's presence, and we talked about how Christians can count on the mercy of God because of their relationship with Jesus, because of the presence of Jesus in their lives. And so the last scene we had in Egypt three weeks ago was this feast that Joseph put on for his brothers. And you'll remember, these guys are hungry, right? Like there's, there's a severe famine taking place in all the land, and that's why they are in Egypt in the first place. They, they have come to buy food, and so here their plates are loaded with the best food that Egypt has to offer. But while the plates belonging to the brothers are pretty loaded, Benjamin's plate is positively overflowing. Joseph has given Benjamin five times the amount of food that he has given to the other brothers. And so we see Joseph once again maneuvering the pieces on the board. He's changed so much since these same brothers intended to kill him, but settled for selling him into slavery. He's changed so much that they do not recognize him, but what he wants to know, what Joseph is desperate to know is if his brothers have changed. And so he sets into motion another test. He plays favorites with Benjamin. Benjamin, the one brother that Joseph, Joseph shares a mother with. Their mother Rachel, we may remember, was their father Jacob's favorite, most beloved wife. And so Jacob favored the sons he had with her over the sons he had with his other wives and the other sons over the other sons now sitting around the table eating their fill. When Joseph was younger, the favoritism shown towards him and his own participation in it had caused his brothers to hate him, to find any excuse and eventually manufacture an excuse to be rid of him. And they jumped at the opportunity when, they ha when, when it arose. Would they do the same with Benjamin? Joseph wondered, would they betray him, or had they changed? To find out, Joseph shows favoritism to Benjamin and then sets the cogs into motion. He calls his right-hand man, his steward over, and tells him to fill all the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and to put all the silver that they used to purchase the food back in their sacks, and furthermore, to put Joseph's own silver cup in the last sack, the sack belonging to Benjamin. The steward does so, and when the brothers leave to return home in the morning with food for their families, Joseph sends the steward out after them, telling him to ask the brothers, why do you repay good with evil? Isn't this the cup that belongs to my master? This is a wicked thing that you've done. And so the steward sets off in pursuits of the brothers, and it's not long before he catches them. And the steward opens up the conversation with the accusation from Joseph, and the brothers are appalled, right? They insist that they have been accused unfairly. They try to reason with the steward, but he will not be swayed. He demands that all of the sacks are to be opened, and whoever should have the silver cup in their bag must become the slave of his master, Joseph. The brothers, believing in their innocence, open their bags. And the steward begins his search, and to build suspense, he starts with the oldest, and begins to make his way towards the youngest. And when the cup is found in Benjamin's bag, the brothers tear their clothes. 
Then they load up everything back onto their donkeys and instead of returning to Jacob, head back up to Joseph in pursuit of their youngest brother, Benjamin. And we're beginning to see the change, right? We're beginning to see the difference in the stories. If it was all those years ago and if it were Joseph's bag that had the silver cup, the brothers would have considered themselves incredibly fortunate to have been able to get rid of Joseph from their lives in such a providential manner. And they would have gleefully ridden home to tell their dad to get over it and that Joseph was gone. But that's not what they do. They tear their clothes in anguish. They are in deep emotion, probably ticked at Benjamin for taking the cup, for they didn't know it was planted, and frustrated that this situation has come upon them. But even more than that, as we will see soon, the love they have for their father plays a role in their emotional breakdown. And so instead of running off to Papa, they pursue the favored brother, the thorn in their side, the one they know that dad loves more than them, but they pursue him anyway. And when they reach Joseph's house, they, they burst in and they throw themselves before Joseph's feet and Joseph scolds them and they take it. And once again, the spokesman for the sons of Israel is Judah. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence, Judah asks God has uncovered our guilt. We are now your slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. Notice he doesn't say the one who stole the cup. He doesn't implicate Benjamin in the wrongdoing. He just accepts it is what it is. And now because of it, not only will Benjamin serve Joseph, but so will all of the brothers. Joseph refuses. You are not all guilty, he says. Only one of you had the cup and will become my slave. The rest of you go. Go back to your father in peace. And at this point, Judah launches into a deeper explanation of their family situation. Some of it Joseph knows, but there are things he does not. Things that he longs to know. Judah recounts their interactions with Joseph. He, he cleverly asserts that Joseph was, has actually set all of this up, and then he moves on to tell Joseph about how much his father loves Benjamin. Where once Judah's words would have held jealousy and spite, they no longer do. He clearly states a situation that he recognizes he has no control over. He has come to terms with. He talks about how their father didn't want to send Benjamin with them, but how because of Joseph's insistence, Benjamin had come anyway. And we'll pick up with our text there. Reading Genesis 44, verses 25 to 34, we read the word of the Lord. Then our father said, Go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our younger brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. And so now, if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with this boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. 
Now then, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return to his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. <coughs> Growing up on the prairies in Saskatchewan, one of my favorite pastimes was catching frogs. There were fields all around the one-block town. Yes, it was one block. We had a total of like 40 people, and we still had a skating rink. But that's the, that's the town that, that I grew up in. There's, you know, there's fields all over the place. And in these fields were sloughs, little gullies of water. My friends and I would take old ice cream pails in our rubber boots and head out to the many sloughs to catch frogs. But frogs aren't dumb. Right? We can hear them croaking from afar, but as we got closer, they would shut their traps. And it could be incredibly difficult to pick their little camouflaged bodies out from the weeds and the straw and the dirt and the mud and the muck of the sloughs. Often, though we would hear a chorus of frogs in the sloughs from afar, we would come home with a lonely one or two in our buckets. And then one spring, we didn't catch any. We couldn't find any of the frogs. The snow had been a bit higher that winter and the rains had been a bit longer in the early spring and the water in the sloughs was so high, higher than the tops of our rubber boots and so we couldn't get out to where the frogs were. Instead, what we found was a round ball of frog's eggs. And we were worried that frog's eggs were like bird's eggs and if we touched them that something could go wrong. So what we did was we took that ice cream pail and scooped the eggs and some of the straw and as much of the slew water as possible into the bucket and we brought it home. And then we promptly forgot about it because let's be real, frog's eggs are boring and kind of gross looking. But a few weeks later they stopped being boring and gross looking and became altogether fascinating. For the eggs began to hatch, and instead of our eggs, our, of, instead of eggs, our ice cream pail was full of more tadpoles than we had ever seen in our lives. Anyone seen a tadpole before? Anyone felt a tadpole before? They're kind of gross. Like they're, they're slimy and slippery. It, it's similar to holding a fish, but a fish without scales. It's, it's disgusting. And then soon these tadpoles began to grow legs. Just two to start, and then there were four, and soon the clear, gross outer skin began to feel more firm, and, and we couldn't see through it anymore, and then the tadpoles began to look less like fish with legs and more like frogs with tails. And the tails were gone, and in a matter of months, we had in our bucket the most frogs we had ever caught in a summer. Too many frogs, really, and so we had to let them go, or they all would have starved to death. The frogs started out as these little jelly eggs and they became full-blown frogs. They changed almost before my very eyes. But Joseph didn't have the opportunity to see his brother, keep his eyes on his brothers the whole time he was in Egypt. So he had no idea what they had gone through or, or who they had become. And that's the thing about people, isn't it? 
Most of the changing that we do is on the inside. Sure, we have this period of time when we're young and we're pretty cute, and, and then we hit this like awkward stage, and then in our and then and then we hit our twenties, and then we, we pretty much begin to look like we're gonna look like, other than the expansion of our waistlines and the sagging of skin. So yeah, like we change. We change, but it's not like frogs do. We don't suddenly grow a tail and begin to breathe underwater. We don't have two of our limbs grow back into our body and then sprout wings. Generally, we are born with four limbs, two eyes, two ears, a nose, a mouth, a tongue, a heart, a pair of lungs, and all the other necessities of life. And Lord willing, if we don't encounter tragedy here on earth, we go to the grave with the same pieces, just a little more wear and tear on them. No, for us humans, the drastic changes that we make are on the inside, in how we think, in how we perceive, in how we mature, in what we believe. And so Joseph can't see the maturing process that his brothers went through, and so he puts them through a test, and what he finds is that his brothers are no longer the men who threw him into a well after beating him. They are no longer the men who had designs on killing him, but instead settled for selling him into slavery. They are no longer the men who hated their father and their favored brothers, for they have changed. God had been working in the hearts of Joseph's brothers. He had been shaping them and molding them, and it wasn't a pleasant process for the brothers. Much of their molding and shaping was done by the guilt and shame they felt for how they had treated Joseph. And though it may be tempting to lay their actions at the feet of the all-powerful, all-knowing God, that would be inappropriate. God didn't direct the brothers to kill Joseph. He didn't force them to betray him and sell him into slavery. Their own sinful hearts did that. But God used those experiences, the aftermath of those choices, to shape and to change them. He used the consequences of the horrible things that these men did to transform them into better men. And so it is with us. There are times that we make really bad decisions and we suffer the consequences of those decisions. God has given us wisdom and he's given us the Bible. And if we follow the guidelines, the truth that he has laid out for us, that he has given us, we'll avoid a lot of self-inflicted harm. But we're bad at it. I'm bad at it. How many times have I felt like Will Ferrell's character, Ron Burgundy, an anchorman, the lady he's trying to impress is pushed into the Kodiak bear exhibit at the San Diego Zoo. And a normal person would get a ladder or a rope or do something that makes sense, but not Ron Burgundy. This man jumps into the enclosure with the intention of saving her, but at once recognizes he is now trapped as well and in as much, and in as much danger as she is. His landing wakes the bear, and as it closes in on the two of them, Ron quips, I immediately regret this decision. How many times have I done something stupid, maybe even something planned, and as soon as I did it, I totally regretted it? Not all regret is immediate. We don't always feel the weight of our sin, the guilt, and the shame right away, but when it does settle in, I hang my head and I wonder how I could have been so ignorant, so selfish, so stupid. Can anyone else relate to that. Some of the hard things in life are self-inflicted. Some of the hard things in life just happen. Not because we made a poor decision, but because our world is broken by sin, disease, natural disasters, heartache, love lost, death, pain. Not all hardship is earned. 
But whether the difficulties of our lives are self-inflicted or they have sought us out, God is not above using them for his purposes to mold us more and more into who he desires us to be. As a human and as one who has dealt with some hardship that was not earned, it doesn't seem fair. It feels unnecessary. Couldn't God have used something else to, to get my attention or to teach me the lessons of, this, of, of, of dependence? Couldn't he have used something a little less painful in my life to transform me into who he wants me to be? Couldn't my path have been a bit easier and, and made a bit more sense? And as I sit in those frustrations, I think back to those frogs in the bucket that spring up in Hagen, Saskatchewan, Canada. If the frog's journey to maturity made sense, it would be a scaleless, slimy fish. When we look at the journey of a frog going from a little egg that looks kind of like an eyeball into a fish-type creature that breathes water and doesn't have any limbs, only to continue its development until it finally takes its intended shape, that of a frog that can swim, jump, and breathe air, when you're looking at that journey, it's hard not to think that there were some unnecessary things going on there. Why couldn't it just become a frog right away? Why were there these other steps? Why was the maturation process so long and, and so confusing? And I don't have an answer to that. I don't think I will, it'll ever make sense to me why God added those steps to the transformation process of a frog. And I'm not convinced that it'll ever make sense to me why I or you or any of us have to go through such hard times in life during our transformation processes. And though there is a lot that I don't know and a lot that seems unnecessary, where I find my comfort is that at the end, the egg goes from an egg to a frog. The journey is crazy. And it doesn't necessarily make sense to us. But it ends where God intended it to. We may not like it. I certainly don't always like it. But that doesn't make it less true. God uses the hardships of our life for his purposes. Hey, he uses the great things in life too. But he absolutely uses the hard things. And though transformation is hard, it is also beautiful. I mean, look at the transformation of Joseph's brothers who, look at, look at these men, look at who these men had been. Reuben, the eldest, had an affair with his father's wife in an attempt to steal power from his dad. Simeon and Levi had planned and executed the horrific deception and genocide of the Shechemites and had stood before their father, bloody, unrepentant, and defiant, declaring that they were just protecting the good name of their sister. And then Judah, the whoremonger, who impregnated the wife of his deceased son when she was disguised as a Canaanite prostitute. And each of them and the rest of the brothers, except for Benjamin, arrayed before Joseph were part of the plan to have him killed, which turned into selling him into slavery, putting him on the path that had taken, to him, taken him where he was today. These, these are not good dudes. These men had done horrific and awful things. Any of this stuff hits Twitter or social media, and these dudes are canceled like forever. Like they're done. And yet who they have been is not fully who they are anymore. I appreciate the laugh, man. Thank you. That was nice. That, that hit my heart a little bit. Anyone else wants to laugh at my bad jokes? You're welcome to do that. I'm here for it, and I totally appreciate it. 
But it's awesome, isn't it? These guys, who they were is not fully who they are anymore. For here they stand, though they had been offered freedom, they were choosing to put on the chains for the sake of their brother and for the love of their father. The brother who had been favored over them, given privileges that once drove them mad with jealousy, and the father who had mistreated them and undervalued them, had been cruel to them. The father they had mocked and rebelled against, and they now loved. God changed them. We see this clearly in Judah, the whoremongering sinner who, because, who becomes a Christ figure in the story when he offers himself in the place of Benjamin. I don't know where you're at in life. I, I don't know what you have done or where you once were or maybe you know, even where you are, who you are right now. But God does. And there's nothing that you have done, nothing that you have thought or said that is beyond God's love for you. The God who loved the genocidal maniacs, the whoremonger, and the man guilty of incest is the same God who loves you. And where Judah plays the Christ figure for a brief period in our text this morning, Jesus, the true Christ figure, will never leave that role for you. He will never stop loving you. He came to earth to die for you, for the sin that we have committed demands justice, and justice needed to be forgiven, but the justice that each and every one of us deserves for the poor decisions we have made, that justice was poured out on Jesus, who willingly died on a cross in our place. That's how deep the Father's love for us is, that he sent his Son to die in our place, so that the sin that separated us from him could be atoned for, so that the debt could be paid off, and so that we could be brought back into relationship with him. This is our God. And Jesus did not stay dead. For three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we have faith in him, and we rest in the faith that he has given us, we are clothed in Christ. So Christians, when the Father looks at us, he no longer sees our sinful rags, but sees the righteousness of his Son, Jesus. This is what Scripture tells us. This is what the Word of God promises us. It promises us that God is transforming us. The transformation of a frog is called metamorphosis. The transformation of a Christian is called sanctification. And this transformation, this sanctification, is not a simple thing, but a journey. And we are promised that the journey will not be easy. That our own sin will get in the way of our relationship with God and in the way of our relationship with our neighbor. That life, that the elements of this broken world will hurt us and abuse us. That we will experience trauma and pain. But we are also promised that we are not alone in that journey. We are not alone experiencing the pain. We are promised that we do not fight the temptations of our sinful nature on our own, but that God, that Jesus, that the Lord of the universe, the one who sits upon the eternal throne, is with us through it all. And that he never stops loving us. And that he is using the hardships that we go through, whether they are self-inflicted or they have been thrust upon us, he uses all of them to continue the process of sanctifying us, of making us more like Christ. And when we fail to respond to these difficult circumstances in the right way, he forgives us. When our faith falters, he sustains us. This is our God, the same God who changed the hearts of the brothers that they could overcome their jealousy and that they could move past their trauma and love Benjamin, their brother, and love Jacob, their father. This same miracle is at work in you 
and it is at work in me. How thankful I am for a God that does not expect his people to perfect themselves on their own, but one who is actively changing them, transforming them, loving them, forgiving them, and drawing them closer to himself throughout the process. Church, know that you are loved. And know that you do not sanctify yourself, you do not change yourself, but that God changes you. And though some of the steps may feel and seem like they are unnecessary, God has a bigger and better plan in place than we could ever know or comprehend. He knows where he wants us. He knows the person he has designed us to be. He alone knows what our final shape looks like. And we can trust the process because we trust in the one who is with us, loving us, shaping us, and molding us. The one who died for us. And the one who now lives and will never leave us or forsake us, but holds us close in his arms of grace and mercy and is a comfort for us as we navigate this crazy journey of life. What a fantastic, wonderful, and amazing God we serve. Amen.